0: Born and raised in Denver, Natalie Hodges has performed as a classical violinist throughout Colorado and in New York, Boston, Paris, and the Italian Piedmont, as well as at the Aspen Music Festival and the Stowe Tango Music Festival. She graduated from Harvard University, where she studied English and music, and lives in Denver, Colorado. Uncommon Measure is her first book. Natalie
1: Hodges. Welcome to The Creative Process. Thank you so much for having me. So we've been really enjoying your book, which explains so much about education, improvisation, writing, all these things that performers and like everyone, I think, encounters to some degree. Just to give those who haven't yet had a chance uh, to read Uncommon
2: Measure, I believe you're going to read a passage. Yes, and the one I've selected is from just an early chapter to kind of give an idea of some of those issues that I struggled with as a musician, but then also some of the questions that catalyzed the writing of the book. The performance was going well, almost unbelievably well, in fact. I'd practiced counting down each time the theme returned as a way of getting through the piece, of keeping track and also keeping up morale, only three more repetitions of the theme till the end, now two, now one. Yet something strange started to happen as I counted those returns down. I felt, and this is the only way I know how to describe it, that I was inside the music's time, in the heart of a tolling grandfather clock whose gears turned at an allegretto grazioso rate of six eighth notes to a bar. The bell tolled on the hour of the theme, but the time in between was itself worrying and unfolding, development by development, variation by variation. Taking off the theme's returns, I felt at the same time how each section engendered the next, how they progressed into and referred back to and complicated one another, and how, in always circling back to the theme, they shaped a globe of time, a sphere of sound. Each variation's passage changed the feeling of the theme that followed it, inflecting it with the memory of all that came before so that even as each theme relocated itself in the present, it echoed with the ghostly chimes of the past. Then I remembered that I was supposed to mess up. Time, which had been bubbling steadily along, froze. My hands seized up. Everything seemed to happen in slow motion, yet too fast for me to catch up. My left hand wouldn't shift smoothly up the fingerboard, which was unfortunate because the chromatic and arpeggiated runs accelerate from the original tempo and require by the final measure, about three shifts per bar. My right hand, meanwhile, decided it was no longer capable of holding the bow, causing my bow hold to collapse and my fingers to lock, white knuckled, just to keep from dropping the bow entirely. Then it happened. Just before the last chord, I dropped the bow. I was forced to play the chord by plucking the strings in what was perhaps the world's unluckiest and most spontaneous demonstration of pizzicato. It's almost comical now, but whenever I think back and try to analyze what happened, I am still stricken by the memory, sick and visceral, of how it felt when time stopped. Why is it that one sense of time, so supple inside the music itself, seizes up and cracks beneath an audience's expectant gaze, or as soon as one becomes aware of that gaze, that expectation? Why does getting into the flow of the music require yielding yourself to its time? feeling its flow through and around you, when all the while time is also the enemy, the thing you're running out of as you play along, trying to make it to the end and yet trying to make something of the moment while the music lasts. If you can't get into that flow, if your nerves get the best of you and you're dragged onto the shore of self-consciousness, well, chances are you'll mess up that tricky run or play the last chord as an anticlimactic pizzicato and hurry off the stage with your head bowed. In performances like my botched Paganini, even when you've been dreading all the while that something will go awry, you're never prepared for it. The flow is staunched, the fabric rent. You feel punched in the gut, knocked out of the music's time and back into your own. And then, afterward, you can feel the seconds and minutes passing. You trudge through, it's all linear. You just want it to be over. You just want to make it to the end.
1: You really capture so beautifully the dread. It's thrilling, but it's also kind of the nightmare. <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>.
2: <laughs> exactly. it's, very, it's very almost um, like gun to the head kind of moments. where. <laughs> yes. And you're, you're the one holding the gun and you can't put it down. And it's the nightmarish thrill. Yes, absolutely.
1: And I like it's so interesting because we it, you know we don't always unpack those phrases you know losing time and then uh, as I also think about performers or particularly of classical music almost yes. this losing one you know we say one loses oneself one loses oneself in the music there's another side of that too is that you want is surrendering or submitting one losing oneself to become an yes. instrument of another artist's voice. And so I wondered, I know you studied Suzuki method and, um, and I'm very interested in the way in which we teach the arts and, and the way in which we teach music. And, and some people have said to me that, gosh, they wished when they were learning music, I mean, these are like notable uh, composers and when they were learning music, there wasn't an emphasis on music composition. Like they had to find their way to it. Yes. So the, the joy early on, like it almost like people said they almost abandoned music because they hadn't been given this other path where maybe they could, Find the joy in the music.
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: So tell me, you know, what your feelings are about that, and you know, how do you find the joy within also this very rigid structure of losing oneself?
2: Yes. Well, so I, I did. I started out um, in the Suzuki method, and and basically, I finished it. I went pretty much all the way up through the end of the books, and being in the Suzuki method was such a gift actually. The, the philosophy is to nurture children by love and um, the founder of the method, um, Shinichi Suzuki, he, he thought that children should learn or be taught to play music um, the same way that they acquire speech from their parents, that, that um, it should be this very uh, involved process of mimicking. So the parent basically learns alongside um, their child. And the point of it um, is not to produce prodigies or you know, you know people who will you know practice twelve hours a day, but it's to, um, I think, as you said, for children to have the experience of knowing how to work hard at something, experiencing the joy of being able to lose themselves in that in that music. So for for me, the sense of it as a really rigid structure, um, it, it didn't start out that way. And actually, when I was very little, I loved performing and I never got nervous. It was only when I decided that I really wanted to enter classical music and, you know, realized there's a very sort of set pattern that your life is supposed to follow. If you want to be a professional musician, you have to, you know, practice for this many hours a day. You have to be at this conservatory by this time in your life, auditioning with certain pieces. And that was when I felt sort of the necessity of all this different structure kind of clamped down on the time that I had. And that was quite painful. And it made it um, impossible for me to have that feeling of losing myself in, in, a, in a way where you can just kind of abandon who you are to the music, because I was always so self-conscious about whether I was doing it right. So yeah, so that came later for me, maybe around my, my adolescence.
1: I believe that the Suzuki method is very interesting in terms of imparting that and also the kind of collaboration with the parents. And, uh, and so you come from a musical family as well. So that it's nice when you can, it's a way of it's, it's actually your way of communicating. Would you say?
2: Yes, it was a way of Well, it's always been a way of sharing the love that I have for my siblings and my mom, because all of us played, my mom played when she was younger. And I think, that's also what they were, they were the most support. They were so supportive when I started to move away from music and choose a different path for me, when I was originally considering that, that was also part of the sadness of it too. Cause I thought this is this thing that I have shared with my siblings and it, I feel so much that it's part of me and um, who I am in my family in that way. And that was more an ex- expectation that I had and less than one that they had. But now that I'm performing less, that actually the connection between my music and my family is what still keeps me playing when I do play. Because um, when, my, when my siblings are, when we're all home, we'll always sight to read together. And it's so fun to, to still talk about music with them.
1: And, and on the subject of joy, and, and now as you're an author, I think it's widely accepted that within writing, the ability to have authorship of your work is something that's, it's, it's more easily, uh, it's more readily available than when one is a, a performer. It kind of almost, I don't know how many years it takes before you feel like you're able to put your character on the work you don't want to you don't want to suffocate your you don't want to imprint yourself so much so it changes the work so I wonder if that was something that you struggled with you know perfection embodying other artists voices but and now that you're a writer where it's really your voice is coming out have you regained you did speak a lot about this um you know sense of freedom and and
2: joy Yes, I think this was something that I uh, dealt with on a number of levels as a performer. So first, like if you're playing a piece that you've memorized beforehand, that you've practiced, you know, hours and hours that you've dedicated to it, um, there is this feeling that you're always having to remember ahead, as it were, because you have all the ways that you've planned for the piece to go coming up and you have to be uh, keeping, keeping those in mind always. And that is what sort of would always take me out of the moment, out of the present, as I was performing that, oh, I have to remember, this is coming up, have to remember the notes I'm going to play, how I want to craft it. So there was that wanting to kind of copy myself um, from practice, then, then you're absolutely right. There is also the element of these canonical pieces have been played so many times. Um, and there are very, um, you know, there are certain performances that have it looms so large in the uh, in sort of the shared classical imagination that they are the way they're supposed to sound, um, and so you, uh, in some ways, you there is that tension between wanting to craft your own interpretation, not wanting to deviate from the way everybody hears it too much at the same time. So it is. I always would feel that there were these, these pressures bearing down that were about you know, wanting to recreate the past, needing to plan for the future over and over again in each moment as I was playing. And when I started writing, as I was moving away from music, that was one of the um, the wonderful things about writing was I loved that I would uh, go to my Word document at, that I would written in yesterday, and then whatever I had put down would still be there uh, the next day, that there was a kind of permanence to it that I wasn't having to recreate all the time, something new over and over again. And there was tremendous relief in that and a joy in that as well. But as I've gotten farther out from playing music in the way that I did, and then also from the experience of writing the book, there's a real similarity to when you're writing and to when I, at least for me, when I felt like I was playing well and the performance wasn't encumbered by thoughts of past or future, or I have to do it this certain way. There was like, when, when I'm writing, if it's, you know, going well, and I just connect with a certain idea, and so I'm not worried about how I'm saying it. And of course, I'll go, have to go back and you know edit things later. Um, but you're just going toward this idea that to connect with it, this feeling, you want to express, and the words kind of fall into place. They they go to match that instead of you trying really hard to think. Oh, how can I craft the perfect phrase? And I think when you're playing or for people who are you know, um, gifted improvisers in music, it's that same kind of thing where you have something that you want to express. You don't know definitively what it is, um, but in trusting that and trying to go toward that idea and accepting that you'll falter a bit in going toward it, you create something much more meaningful because there is um, the freedom and the risk and, and the joy of the risk as well.
1: I want to ask you about improvisation because I I love to improvise. I love your Mm. chapter about, uh, you discussed in depth, uh, Gabriela Montero, the Venezuelan (laughs) musician and improviser, uh, virtuosa, And I really love to learn about that. And I always uh, veered towards art forms where I felt I could express something that was my voice (laughs) and then always resisted. And, And this can be an issue, always resisted when someone else would like oh, this is the way you do it. And I know. So, so that was my problem. So I very much admire musicians, but that's why I couldn't stick with piano or violin. It was like, I was to- So understandable. <laughs> yes. Um. But some people are frightened of improvisation. Sometimes it works the other way around. Like, it's like, oh my gosh, this is a tight wire. <laughs> but right. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about that, because I think it's a really mysterious world, even for those who are great practitioners of improvisation.
2: They didn't even know what's going on. It's like, did I do that? Someone else entered me, right? Exactly. And I, from my understanding and my my research on improvisation and on her, if you've done it well, like that's the feeling that you have is that, oh, did I do that? I didn't know that I did that. Even Gabriella Montero always, she talks about the way she characterizes is that, you know, when I improvise, I get out of the way or I turn on a faucet deep inside my brain and it just flows. And what's fascinating and what my the, the chapter um, in the book is that's about her talks about is there's a neuroscientist, Dr. Charles Lim, who's fascinated by Gabrielle Montero. He's done uh, studies of the brains of improvising jazz musicians, um, but was really taken with her because she improvises in a classical idiom, in an idiom that's seemingly the opposite of what improvisation kind of stands for. And what he found in studying her brain, and uh, he he ran a bunch of uh, fMRI scans of her as she improvised on this special keyboard that went into the scanner with her, um, was that there's a real decrease in functional connectivity between regions of the brain that modulate the ego and the sense of self, at least for her when she's improvising. So that's not a region of the brain in particular, it's the connections between a lot of them and that together is what creates our sense of self and also our sense, our, our conscious memory and our ability to anticipate um, and plan for the future. So our knowledge of our ourselves in these different spheres of time, that the the light of that activity is dimmed during improvisation. Um, and so there, there really is a, a biological reason behind her feeling that she gets out of the way and something else comes to the fore and the study you know, asks to why then is why are her improvisations still so um, coherent? Why how do they hold up together in time? Um, and it's be, they 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 refer to it as this form of kind of embodied creativity or embodied cognition, where it's her it's it's a deeper kind of memory, a more physical memory in her fingers in her body that just knows how to play. That kind of takes over. Um, and allows her ego to kind of dissolve in that in that moment as she performs.
1: It's so interesting, and I really like the fact. Because some people feel that um, improvisation is somehow not a form of composition, and I just feel like yes.
2: it, it. really is. It so <laughs> is. Right. Well, we, um, the the great jazz saxophonist Wayne Shorter, right? He said, um, "Composition is just improvisation slowed down." Yeah.
1: Exactly. I wonder if what you sense from the audience like when audiences is, is uh experiencing an improvisation and i know with her there's this kind of response as well with audiences putting forth like here yes. improvise on this um, <laughs> exactly um how does our attention change when we know wow this is the only time this is ever going to be performed
2: oh yeah well i i think i mean she has said gabriella montero has said she said i i think, in this world today when there is when there is so much of a focus on recording and fixing things, she's like, it's just nice to do something once, uh, very free and, and that's it, like that's what she said. And um, I think what you mentioned about her concerts and the structure of her concerts where people stand up and sing to her, they say, can you improvise something on this theme? And um, she like speaks with them, she addresses them personally and says, yes, she memorizes it and then off she goes, I think, that connective, communicative element that's also more casual in some ways, it does relate to that, to the fact that in improvisation, we're all going to be, you know, together. Whatever happens for this length of time, we're going to share this and we'll never share it again in the same way. Um, And I don't know how that couldn't make you more alert and more eager to hang on to every note, but also more willing to let it go at the same time because you're really conscious of, you know, all of us are as we go through our day to day, so trapped in our subjective times. But for these 15 minutes of this performance, we're gonna feel time demarcated in the same way. We're gonna feel the same kind of emotions as the music is playing and that's quite special. So for this time that we do have, we, we can share it. Um, and I think that is really what she brings to the fore of her concerts. It's the point of her concerts. Um, and then necessarily they're more interactive and democratic. And
0: in your book, you talk about how your past
2: comes back as you go through different phases and experiences
0: in your life, um, like a chorus and a song, and how by going through the past, we can be able to understand it. Where do you think the line is between not being able to let go of your past
2: and moving on? Oh, um, I struggle to figure that out every day. <laughs> um, I mean, I think there there is a line, of course. Um, I think... At least for me, the only way that I ever find it is by um, stepping over it constantly. You know, whenever I'm, you know, if I'm, if I ever struggling, I talk with my sister and what she always says to me is the only way out is through. And I really do believe that you can feel trapped in the past. Like the past is this own kind of wormhole that comes back again and again. And I, I don't know, at least for me, I want to get out of the mindset of ever expecting it not to um. Not to return all of a sudden, not to just turn the corner and there it is for you again. Um, because I think when 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 grief um, is that powerful, or there's been something that's been you know that much a part of your life, like no matter what, I'll always go to a concert and feel a little bit sad because that represents the kind of a, a path that I was going to take and then and then didn't. So I think getting rid of the expectation that um, the past won't haunt you. Um, that, I, that it'll cease to haunt you has been important for me. But the other idea that was quite compelling to me that I, I talk about in the book that actually comes from from quantum physics is that the, the universe itself really has no fixed past or history. Um, and that's quite terrifying to think about, right? But it's that in attempting to record it, like if you attempt to record, record the movement of particles, they actually change what they chose to do in the past. And that's a phenomenon that's been documented in what's called the famous double slit experiment, um, where every time the physicists try to record the particles behavior, it's as though the particles knew that the physicists were going to do that. And then they, they, they altered their um, paths. And so I think for me in going back and writing about the past as I have, there was this fear that oh am i am i changing it am i in attempting to understand it am i kind of bending it falsely to this curve where i need to be able to you know reconcile the fact that i don't play anymore and justify it but at the same time in giving yourself some kind of narrative i think to hold on to and staying as true to the facts as you can there is a letting go in that and a freedom and that's that was my hope for myself with the book and it's not of course the My past with music is never done, but I have this way of understanding it for myself and then moving forward.
1: Exactly. I think that it, it really, this is really a meditation on time and, and so many things it can be taken as a metaphor, I think, for those who aren't in the arts. It's just, it just really helps us put so many things into context. And one thing I also enjoyed is as you wrote about tango, and also your relationship to playing tango, where I guess you were sort of freed up in this, because it's a sort of a breaking of the rules, music and dancing. <laughs>
2: Absolutely.
1: And I was I really like um, how if you could talk about how the tango dancers, you know, communicate, you know, not through words, but just through this knowing or one mindness. Um, And in a way, uh, musicians do that, too. Or you see the birds, the murmuration of birds. How, How is
2: this possible? I you know, I don't. It's miraculous. And I think to really that was one of the best parts of writing the book for me was watching tango dancers and just seeing what a miracle it was that they can improvise in sync. Um, And there, you mentioned the murmuration of of birds. There is some speculation that um, quantum entanglement between uh, like within like really, really deep like at the quantum level within um, certain neurons in the brain may be sort of what consciousness emerges out of um, within a single brain but then that would also allow us to connect with, connect with other people, that's, I mean, that's very, there's very, very basic research on it. It's more of a hypothesis that quantum entanglement is somehow at the root of consciousness. But what I would say with tango music, a couple things. Yes. That whenever I, I used to play a lot of it with my quartet in high school and those, I, I noticed always that those would be the performances when I never, I didn't feel afraid. Um, I felt much more, much freer, more alive, um, more willing to take risks, and I felt like all of us would be more willing to take risks, but we would somehow be able to take them together. Um, and a lot of that, I think, it came from how how easy it is to connect emotionally with that music, but also from how much whenever we would perform tango, the audience, wherever we were, um, would respond so powerfully to it, and it's just fun. Um, so. I that's what drew me to tango always. And I I knew I wanted to write about it um, because I had had that feeling of freedom while playing it, but I knew to to write credibly about it. At one point I was going to have to learn how to dance. So I ended up taking these tango classes under the guise of reporting on tango um, for the book. And the, the, again, the, the best metaphor that I could, um, fine for it, watching my classmates and our instructors who were able to, to move so wordlessly in sync without planning, um, was uh, this idea of quantum entanglement. Um, so if we have you know, particle A over here and particle B and their state is entangled, that's just something they share. If particle 1, um, if we cause it to Um, change the direction of its, uh, change its polarity, which is the direction in which its electrical field is vibrating. Um, And it's entangled with particle B. Even if particle B is uh, nowhere near particle A and and no physicist is doing anything to particle B, it will also flip its polarity at the same moment in the same direction as though it knew beforehand what was going to happen um, with particle A. Um, and that's in physics. It's actually that's called that this. It's a phenomenon of coincidence. These two things happening together in time. And that's what it was like to watch. That's what it is like to watch people who are gifted tango dancers. It's as though they know beforehand um, what each other, what, what each, what their partner is going to do. And the beautiful way that my tango instructor instructor would talk about it was he said that the the abrazzo or the embrace in which tango dancers hold each other is that that is what sort of the fire of that connection is what produces steps, it produces improvisation and allows for that ability to anticipate one another. He says in in, in its own way, it's very much like jazz. And I think that's so true because when you are really, even if you think in the context of a relationship, any kind of relationship, if you're quite close to that person, the more you, um, and the more connected you feel to them, the more you'll be able to anticipate um, their needs, what will make them happy, what will, you know, take them off. It's, it's this beautiful ability to kind of know, almost in a way know the future with that other person if you have this, this shared closeness.
0: There were a lot of things that stood out to me while listening to Natalie Hodges. One of the things that stood out to me was when she was talking about her past and how when she listens to concerts, she gets a feeling of being left out. I relate to this a lot because I used to play the piano and violin. I started playing the piano when I was six years old and I started playing the violin when I was nine. I eventually stopped playing violin after I realized, like Natalie, that I could not enjoy performing because I was always too stressed out. I would always dread going on stage, never once feeling lost in time and then feel so relieved after I was done. I eventually quit violin when I was around 14 years old. I would still play piano sometimes, but I eventually stopped playing the piano too. Sometimes when I see people playing piano violin or just listening to them in general, I get sad because I always wonder what would have happened if I had continued to pursue both those instruments. They are both such beautiful instruments and I love hearing them. And despite the lingering feeling of stress, I often find myself wanting to put my fingers on the piano again, and maybe put my hands on my bow as well. Another thing that stood out to me was when Natalie talked about tango dancing and how when people are tango dancing together, they can anticipate their next moves, like people in relationships. She talked about how in relationships, you quote, know the future. I thought that this was so interesting because it is true that the more time you spend with someone, the more you can predict what they are going to do. You can predict how long they're going to take to get ready or how often they're going to say a certain phrase in a given day. You really get to know people the more you spend time with them. And I think those connections are really vital to everybody. Another thing that really stood out to me is when Natalie eventually talks about how music can be tied to your memories and how listening to those songs can bring back senses and feelings. I absolutely love this and I agree with this so much. I know that whenever I listen to Waves of Blue by Magic Jordan, I always get the feeling like I'm floating or like I'm so light that I could be whisked away by its melody. It always reminds me of the first time I played it in my car during a sunset when it was a warm day and my windows were rolled down. And that feeling has remained with me ever since. Now I'm just waiting till it gets warmer so I can roll down my windows again, feeling that feeling all over again. Now back to the interview. And I think what's also quite interesting about tango,
1: as an amateur tango dancer, I'm very sorry. amateur, but is <laughs> um, there is this fight, there is this, you know, so it's part of the improvisation where there's this kind of unbalancing. I don't think yes. it's in, like in all dance there's a sense of balance and thing, but this unbalancing is almost like the beauty of it, and you know, the and and as they dancers unbalance each other. And you have this kind of that allows for the improvisation through the pivots and the different uh, way it can go in many directions. And you don't see it so much in other dances. And also what I love and we see, you know, it's they, they tango every all summer long. They tango on the, the Keys of Paris, which is so nice to see. Mm. It doesn't require perfect bodies. You see even just like elegant older persons <laughs> dancing. And so it really welcomes yes. all kinds of body types and stuff, too, that so it's, it's very human. It, it embraces it the is. imperfection. <laughs>
2: yes. Oh, I love that um, so much because I, I don't know if you've seen the movie *Scent of a Woman* with Al Pacino. There, that there's a very uh, famous scene where he he's he's blind, right, and he tangoes with this young woman that he's just met, um, and the 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 band is playing um, *Tango por una cabeza* um, by Carlos Gardel. Um, and he she he he invites her to dance and she says oh I've never danced before I don't think I can do it and he says he says he's like you know there's there's no mistakes in tango like not it's not like in life and he says you get tangled up you just tango on um so I appreciate what you say about its allowance of for imperfection since it's so I think the, the since the heart of it is that connection that's what allows for um mistakes and, and and in that there's a wonderful lesson in how to live i think um yeah i what you I, the word that you use un, partners unbalancing each other even as they hold each other in this embrace that there's that there's a i mean it it is this and uh, you know as a dancer there is an incredible tension it doesn't feel easy when you're in that embrace with that other person like it's quite terrifying um and there is in every moment it's do i know or do i not know what they're going to do and there is that terror, but somehow you you end up doing it, and that's what my again the the teacher of this tango class, um, Thomas Wisniewski, he said that when you're improvising really well, your partner can surprise you, um, and you will still be able to move with them because they're they'll show you things about the music through their dancing that you didn't realize, but they're all, they'll also be very attuned to your interpretation, which they'll be able to pick up from all of these subtle physical cues and also just from the proximity that you share with them. I love that idea of unbalancing and balance being part of each other all the time.
1: So speaking about balances and you you mentioned the film the scent of a woman which has a, a it's char- one of its characters a, a blind man. And um I'm very interested in how uh you know we have all these five senses but we don't use them equally and I'm sure as when you were more actively performing all the time um, as a musician. I know you still perform, so I shouldn't say that. But um, you know, you know, you, some musicians have told me they almost go through the world like on sonar. You know, and, you know, it blocks out the other senses, and this happens in terms of different art forms. So I was wondering, like, now that you're a writer, although writing is very musical, defined, you, you know, as, as one sense increases, the other. Just becomes not the primary, I guess. So, how is that interesting for you? Or how do you continue to have a, a conversation between you know your different primary art forms, and um, and then if you had to choose about a scent, and it's a horrible one, it's like which sense <laughs> would you lose? <laughs> but it's <interesting>. Which scent?
2: <laughs> Any of my sense? five? <laughs> Any five? Oh. That's or, the a six, hard. or the six <laughs> that you wrote about too. <laughs> The six, Oh, the six that I wish I had, um, that enables really good improvisation. Okay, yeah, but, okay. Maybe I'll 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 stall by talking about the conversation between art forms first. While I try to pick a sense, I would lose. I for me, I mean, it's it's interesting because to turn to writing as I was leaving music, or actually because I was leaving music, may has made them again feel. Opposite, but I also I really I don't feel that I would have anything to write about if I hadn't been a musician. And when I when I'm writing, if we're talking about creative process, um, a lot of it for me is wanting to go toward the idea or the connection that I'm pursuing um, intellectually, but also feeling that um, a sentence should have a certain um, sonic shape, or that to best encapsulate that idea, there will be a, a, a phrase to it because. You want that, um, you want there to be emotion underscoring the idea, if that makes sense. And for me, at least that comes through uh, sound um, and phrase. Like Virginia Woolf, I think she she once talked about how you want to get at um, what she called the the very jar on the nerves, that uh, really emotional feeling that you can get from reading a good sentence. Or, um, and I, I think you, that's how you feel when you listen to a piece of music. The connection between those two art forms, uh, writing and music, for you know, because I turned to writing as a way of leaving music, or as I was leaving music, or because I was leaving it, um, they have felt so separate and opposite um, in some ways. But I, I really do feel that I wouldn't have anything to write about if I hadn't been a musician um, in terms of subject matter, but also because I do when I'm writing. If we're talking about creative process, I there's you know there's a, a certain idea that I want to pursue or connection that I'm trying to, to tease out intellectually. But there's also, I, I do feel that there's the the, the the sound of the sentence or the shape of the phrase is also part of, of that meaning too and how you lead toward it because the, you want there to be an emotion that's connected to the idea and sound is how you produce that emotion um, in writing too. So I think wanting always to be conscious of um, not not like in a contrived way, trying to create create musical writing, but to feel that sentences are like phrases. they have to they they create this feeling of embodied time, right? Because as you read, you're moving through time as well. and that the meaning isn't just in in what you're saying, but in the way those phrases lead to one another. So that's I think that's the connection I feel between those two art forms. and I don't know. I, I would always wish, in which your, your question about senses, um, what I always wished when I was performing was that I would have um, a shutdown of my other senses. And when I was really anxious, I, it would be like every sense was alive. There was too much information coming in through everything. I was so conscious of how my fingers felt on the fingerboard, um, like the smells in the room, like the sweat dripping down. I would, like, my eyes would dart everywhere, um, and I would be conscious of the different people I was seeing. So I, I, but, but I, but when, but when I was performing, well, um, you're not, I, I, wouldn't actually feel like I was processing any of that. It's just, um, it is like being inside of the music, if that makes sense. And that kind of uh, protects you, even though it's so much so rooted in your body at the same time. And if I had to choose a, any of my five senses to lose, I don't know, is it, is it cheating to say smell? Because I don't no, that's
1: probably the one I would choose. I think so. <laughs> but they say it's related to taste, but you know, yes. we're, se- we're separating them, so we'll say you can keep okay. all your taste and you can lose your Okay, <laughs> then,
2: then that's definitely cheating. But I'll still pick it. Yeah.
0: And um, do you think if you hadn't written about your past and your journey playing music, you would have continued to feel the loss of almost becoming a musician or full time musician?
2: Yes, absolutely. And it's I I, I do still. Uh, feel that loss, I think I would, I think I would feel less certain that I made the right choice. And of course, it's easy to say now, I've you know, I've been able to, to publish a book. So I feel like, oh, this is a, this is a good thing. Um, but I think I, there, there wouldn't be the same closure for sure. Um, because really in in writing the book, I just, I had, it started because I wanted to understand what was happening neurologically when I would have an, a performance anxiety attack and why that seemed to, to sort of stop my sense of time and musical time. Um, and so I think if I hadn't done the the research and the work of just trying to figure that out and trying to see if there there really was something biologically that happened, I think not having that comprehensiveness and not I I would probably blame myself more. I would, um, feel more regret. Um, I wouldn't have, you know, I I'll always have this, that sense of loss, but I wouldn't have, I think the piece of, or the relative piece of understanding, if that makes sense. And
1: I think about, yeah, understanding. I think that's one thing that language, like clear, like intellectual understanding, also feelings, but like, you know, putting Concrete nuances to ideas. That's something I'd say that's the domain of language. Um, And then there's some levels of communication that probably are best served through music, Um, you know, where it's just so clear and immediate and there's just and deep, right? So as you think about those, that you know, music, certain pieces that you've lived in or you've appreciated from afar that really said something to you and communicated in a complete and
2: direct way? Well, the the piece that immediately comes to mind is um, Sibelius's Violin Concerto in D minor. It's the only concerto that he uh, wrote for any instrument. Um, And... I played it sort of toward the as, as I was starting to have a realization that, oh, maybe a Korean music wouldn't um, work out in the way I thought. And it's just it's an impossible. Any, anyone who has played it or probably heard it can can know or guess that it's really, really technically difficult piece. Um, and emotionally, it's also quite murky as well. Um, and so I, I always. Uh, I loved the piece, but I struggled to find a a personal connection to just the the music or or to feel like I had some way to interpret it. That was really my own. If we go back to um, your earlier question about other people's interpretations versus one, just one's own voice. But when it was, it was actually by doing, I guess you could say this is through language or by, by doing some research and reading about him and realizing that he wrote the piece as he was saying goodbye to violin as well he had really wanted to be a violinist um and he was not permitted to uh join the orchestra or the the academy that he wanted to and that effectively ended his violin career and then he he came back from his audition wept and uh sat down at the piano practice scales and then eventually wrote this concerto Um, having the those words and actually some the words of his biographer to hang on to kind of actually crystallized uh, a lot of feelings I had about violin that i that I hadn't had words for before, and that enabled me to have a deeper more emotional, wordless connection with the piece when I was playing, if that makes sense.
1: no it's, it does. Um, there's no right answer I should say but <laughs> um, uh, you know it's it's always interesting to know those. Those pieces that have been meaningful and um, mm-hmm. that you can live in and return to um, and I'm sure you have a, a longer list too. Yes, um, I do. Yeah. Um, and it really helps you also knowing the biography of the uh, composer or musicians as well. Do you often or do yeah. you not like, do you like to experience first the music? I,
2: I for me learning, being able to have a story um, whether it was that composer's story with the piece or just to, um, being able to delineate my own, um, as a way of kind of structuring, again, the time of the piece and tell it to myself has always been important, but I, I think there's nothing is ever lost if you, um, do the research on the composer and their, um, and their, you know, their time period, their background so that you know how to, how to inflect what you're playing, Um, uh, there, there's there's never going to be anything lost from that. I do think if there's too much, or at least for me, if I was too focused on saying, oh, there's, because I have I have this historical understanding of them now, there's a really certain way that I need to play everything, that then can become too limiting too. But if you try, if you can, if you know the story uh, that the piece is rooted in and the emotions that is rooted in, that is always going to be helpful.
1: I liked also um, listening to you speak about um, the music of writing and and bringing forth a, a feeling uh, so it's not just, you know, logic based. Uh, I know yes. that sometimes uh, the longer, it, it depends on how deeply rooted one is and the individual senses or, or mediums. But I know some writers are, are so much in the, the, so deep into the language they, they won't see or they don't they don't have as much of a sense. Sometimes, you know, they don't know what their characters look like. They don't, sure, <laughs> sure. that's irrelevant. It's, it's right. just the words. Uh, so, uh, but I like to, that that whole bodied sense. I, I feel really, and that's, that's where I fall on these things is I feel like when- yeah each of our senses is enlivened, like that's that's a sh- sign of a great work. And uh, when we can like just tingle, <laughs> just, t- mm-hmm. it just tingles all those all those nerve endings, all those senses. Right, um, right. So I think it's a great service to writing. I think it's a great grounding in the discipline and you might find other ways that, wow, you're, you're still drawing upon this fertile
2: ground. Yeah, I think because, you know, that's, because I don't, I think, I would probably be thinking more consciously about that, um, the different senses, if I were writing fiction, and that would be—it's something I've never done before. So that would be a really interesting experience. But I think, I, th- I think what I, as I was writing this book, and what I admired is, admired is um, actually the way the connection between journalism, because I guess you could. It is in its own way reported. A lot of these, I, I wanted to, cause I went out and tried to, to um, meet with different scientists um, to do the tango dancing, to kind of be in the field in that way. That good reportage does borrow elements of fiction because you really want to create, as you said, like a sense of, for the reader that they can be, uh, that they can connect physically with the place and what's going on. So, so that that was important to me to try to um to get at as well. And for the the people who do appear as I guess characters or as figures in the book to give a sense of who they are as much as I could. Um, but I think, going back to that feeling of embodiment, we think about sentences um, and like if your your experience in time reading a book is embodied by those sentences, and the sentences move you through time. Yes, you do want to feel that physical, um, musical pull. So that that is important to me. Yeah, that was something I did think about as I was writing.
1: And as you think also about, um, so we've been talking a bit like uh, about this um, this conflict or this collaboration between the emotions and the discipline, uh, the yes. structure and the the freedoms, right? Yes. Um, how how would you emotionally prepare say as as a musician did you did you feel also in your education that that was something that was emphasized as much as you you think it should be like in terms of this sense of the freedom the creativity and emotions um and 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 what were some kind of teachers that you know kind of how how how, did, how are you guided in that
2: yes i i was um i was lucky to have teachers who um always emphasized that. Um, I don't know that that always happens for people as they're learning classical music, but um, my my main teachers really did. Um, the The teacher I, my gosh, I studied with from when I was 10 until I was 19, 18 or 19, um, James Maurer, he, in, in Denver where I grew up. He had such a, a sense of um, the way that Im, uh, the emotion is connected to the technique. So he would always say, the tempo is the character. If you get the right tempo, you'll have you'll have that character down. And he his, he focused a lot. So so I guess his his focus on technique was always about it being in service of the emotion or the interpretation. And so that was a really lucky thing to um, learn about from a young age and to experience and to be encouraged in. And then I had another teacher in college, Yunshui. Um, who talked about how achieving a a certain feeling in your physical body and a lot being able to sort of align your body in a certain way that was going to make it the easiest and most efficient for you to play the instrument is also what's going to naturally produce the emotion. Like if you're, you know, if tango dancers connect with each other and that produces the emotion that leads to their ability to improvise together, this teacher Ying talked about your connection to your own body as being a way of, of producing that emotion and having it be part and parcel of the physical way that you're playing as well. Um, So I was, I was so lucky to have their guidance in that. I think more broadly, what I struggled with is that I, 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 at least I felt that in classical music, I did feel the pressure of technical perfection, just sort of more ambiently. I mean, if you don't, and and that, that makes sense, right? Like if you're not playing at a certain level, like you're not going to, be a soloist. You're not going to be a a chamber musician. Um, but I think I felt that, or took that to such a degree that, um, it, it, it didn't feel like there was room to, um, try anything different in a performance, or I would beat myself up if I did something differently than in practice, because it didn't feel legitimized or it felt like I had deviated from my preparation in some way. And there really is such a focus on preparation drills and there is a rigidity in that. But the the paradox of that is you wouldn't want to hear someone play like a robot. Like you, we listen to human beings play for a reason, right? Um, we don't just run something through a machine that can produce the notes. And so I, I really, I was cognizant of that too, that you don't, you want it to be. You want it to have an improvisatory feeling, even if you're playing music that is pre-composed um, and that you've practiced a million times. So that was a that was a tension that was really difficult for me. How do I, you know, play this the way I've practiced because I I know the way I want to play it based on how I interpret it, but also make it sound like I'm really in in the moment. And and actually, those two things felt quite impossible at the time you know so
1: it's interesting as you you say you know quite rightly all the joy would be drained away if it was like a robot playing, you know perfectly but without emotion you know what is that missing ingredient and we we know we don't want it it's cold it's just Mm -hmm. something it's perfect but it's too symmetrical like there is a room for asymmetry which you also write about um you know so what are your thoughts now because uh we're kind of transhuman, transhumanism. We're getting, you know, Elon Musk is talking about implants and all. I, well, he has a whole company about it. But you know, so There's a lot of ways they want to improve on humans. And um, and so it's mm-hmm. kind of frightening. And so what are your feelings about that? And there's computer generated music and, you know, how does it, do you respond to that? Does that uh, feel Oh, right?
2: sure, sure. Yeah, well, I think at the most basic level of computer generated music right that would be you know composition programs that if your composer allow you to like it'll just play back for you the notes that you have put down digitally and that sounds like you know automaton right and i i don't i mean I, I at least i wouldn't respond emotionally to that but actually i there's i i love electronic music and the electronic elements that are so much a part of of um popular music now and um rap hip hop, rock, like every, just everything. And I think, gosh, well, I, I mean, even, I was just, I was listening uh, uh, to uh, some Kanye West this morning and like what he does with it, there's so much beauty that uh, he creates with it. And I also think like when you hear, I don't know, like a, a voice or a sample that's been you know sped up and it sounds uh, like kind of, it, it, it's been electronically processed. It does kind of raise this question of, Does make you wonder, like, is that is that more than human? Is it slightly less than human? Like, we it's it it is hard to know. So, I do think that there is a lot of room for that. Actually, um, at least if we're talking about about music and incorporating electronic elements, and I think it's beautiful what so many artists are doing with it, Um, and also quite necessary because, like it or not, we live in a digital and electronic world now, and there's a huge difference between that and you know um, getting computers to think for us or communicate for us which is scary but I think recognizing or or taking this very central part of our world now and something that you know occupies a lot of our consciousness and uh using that in music to express ourselves like that that actually makes a lot of sense to me that that would be where music is now as well and but it's different again from it's it's not cold and soulless in the way that if you just played something back out of a processor, it might be, because it's been transformed to say something about the way we feel and the way we live now.
1: Yeah. As long as, I think, as long as there's a certain authorship, I don't know, like it's open, like there's that risk. It's, it's not a complete algorithm. I think there's some yes, kind of- exactly, <laughs> exactly. that's, it's a bit s- strange when it becomes so. Dehumanized,
2: and then you wonder—sure, machines singing to machines. Exactly. Yeah, not when it's just automatically. If there's still a human being behind, who's like, how can I take this and transform it? Yeah, and and some people's creativity isn't one of
1: being. Um, you know musicians but of just kind of creating things sometimes that's not their talent so that's it it opens up pathways so that's another form of creativity and I was wondering in terms of performance um, and creative uh, visualizations or getting into the flow state that uh, you uh, wrote about um, you know so much when I listen to classical music is I, you know, you can hear birds song, you can hear, you know, echoes of the natural world. I mean, where did your mind go when, when you try to, to reach the metaphors of expression?
2: I guess, let me try to think of a time. Well, I, I talk about uh, this in the book when I talk about um, Bach Shakon for solo violin. Um, There, there's two, whenever I hear that piece or play that piece still, there's two things that I think of and it's, one is in the natural world and one is in the human world and they're actually both tied to my memories so they of course are rooted in the content of the music because the emotion produces the memories right. Um, but it's, it's not because I don't think in that piece, Bach, he isn't representing, you know, birdsong or something like that. Although there are composers like Dvorak who do that um, and do it beautifully and wonderfully. So in the Chaconne, I learned it when I was spending time at a, at a, a camp, a festival, a school in upstate New York. And I learned it looking, my window looked out over this green field we were very far away. There was a a farmer who would lead his cows across the pasture every morning. And in the morning, I get up to practice and the air would be so um, uh, fresh and you could see the uh, shadows moving across the field as the sun rose and changed uh, position. And so I always think of that and I associate those colors with um, the chicone. And the other thing I associated with is uh, the stained glass at a church that I attended with my family when I was growing up, because I had one teacher who sort of, who explained to me um, Bach's religiosity and the connection between um, his, the cycle of his sonatas and partitas, and perhaps with Christ's life, and the Chacon represents the crucifixion. And there was this one stained glass that I was always terrified of because it showed the crucifixion. But I... I always thought of that um, as i was as I was playing, and because this Chaconne has such an element of um, fear and devastation in it, as well as longing, I think, and beauty. So for me, those are all mixed together. So it does go back to to memories and colors.
1: Yes, it, it is beautiful. And so what for you is the importance of the arts?
2: Well, I think what I would say is when for me, when I you know pick a piece of music to listen to or I open a book, I, I do it because I uh, I want to know that I'm not alone in my experience of something. And the the most um, the times when I have actually just felt most alive interacting with a, a piece of literature or artist because I am um, I I mean I think it's a very universal experience. You're like I didn't know somebody else felt this too, and they the way they've put it it. It um, it's almost like you, like you 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 really feel it in your chest because it's there's such a, a closeness and a, there's such a recognition um, and I I think being able to to share that or to to know um, that other people have felt the same as you is the importance of the arts because in having that experience how can you not become a more empathetic person how can you not want more to reach out to others um, I um, I, there's there's a line in a um you do you know Annie Erno, the novelist in her, her book Simple Passion, um, at the very end where she says that this the experience of the love affair she has, um, it it brought her closer to the world. And I I feel that I, I just feel that when I listen to a piece of music I love or read a book I love, that I'm I'm closer to the world now than I was when I began. And I'm a better person because of it. I think more critically. Um, I'm less inclined to be extreme or black and white in my thinking. So I think that's the that's what the arts can do for us at their best. Yeah.
1: Well, thank you, Natalie Hodges, for helping bring us closer to the world, for inviting us into your imaginative world and sharing your process and stories about music, performance, and the science of time. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process.
2: Thank you so much for having me.
0: The Creative Process podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Megan Hegenbarth with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer and digital media coordinator on this podcast was Megan Hegenbarth. Other digital media coordinators are Jacob A. Preisler. Concerto for Two Violins in D Minor, BWV-1043, was performed by Eloise and Natalie Hodges. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening.